Welcome to the Cornerstone Vineyard Weekly Message Podcast. We are enthusiastic about all ages pursuing, experiencing, and having an authentic relationship with Jesus, others, and our community. Join us as we open God's Word and seek His direction in our lives. Good morning, Cornerstone. I, I am Doug... I like it. I do that every time, and I have to cajole people into saying good morning. I am Doug Southworth. I am the assistant director of Beards and Button-Down Shirts. I'm also on the uh, uh, teaching crew here. And unlike Ben, I would really appreciate it if you did not hold up one finger at me while I was speaking. (laughs) So Father's Day, right? Mother's Day, remember we had that really uplifting message for all the moms? Yeah, we're not doing that today. We're just going to keep plowing right into Revelation. We're actually going to be in the seven seals and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which, I don't know, maybe is more fitting, actually. (laughs) So so we've got a really scripture-dense message today. There's a lot here. Uh, I've probably already killed too much time, but uh, so just bear with me. It's going to be really, really solid. I think uh, the Lord is really using this series to speak to people in this church, to get into what is admittedly probably the hardest book of the Bible. So speaking of Bibles, underneath the chairs in front of you, there are paper Bibles if you need them. If you brought your own, use that one. Uh, you're also welcome to use a phone or a tablet or whatever, any other kind of device you've got with you. Um, also, if you want to go to sermons.church, you can go ahead and look up our interact, interactive message notes. So everything I'm talking about will be there. All the scriptures will be there. Probably super useful today. Either that or make sure you got a pen handy. So before we dive into this, I do want to remind you that like a lot of Revelation, there's stuff in here that is, can be controversial. It's really hard to know the exact timelines of things. We're dealing with the mind of God kind of downloaded into a human who then talks about a vision he had. So our goal here is not to give you every little detail about the book of Revelation. It's to give you an overview. It's to explain some of the imagery. It's to hopefully awaken something in you that you want to go ahead and take a look at Revelation yourself, to get you asking questions, to give you just a little bit of a primer so that you can do your own study, so that you can talk about it with your friends and family and kind of dive in a little bit more. I mean, I'm not an expert in Revelation at all. This message, super hard to put together. I missed every single deadline that Matt set for me. I think I got it done, though. I'm looking at my notes. I, th- I think we finished it up. So one other thing, Uh, as we get into the text here in just a second, you're going to see John say, I saw a lot. I saw this. I saw that. This is really the first part of Revelation where we're getting into a window of what John was seeing and what he was experiencing. Remember, he's seeing things from the perspective of both the heavenly realm and the earthly realm and the things that Jesus is doing in these times. And he's just, I mean, he's trying to take this all in and then give it back to us which is really super daunting, right? Like, have you ever tried to describe a dream you had? I don't care how vivid the dream was, you really, it's super, super hard to get out, right? I never remember any of my dreams. I mean, like one a year, maybe, and it's just something mundane, like I was making coffee, and then I wake up, I'm like, oh, I probably should make coffee. My daughter dreams all the time, every day, and I'm not exaggerating. Every single day, she comes downstairs, she's like, I had three dreams last night, let me tell you about them. So she's really good at describing them. I am terrible at it. So I really feel for John here. uh, And I think it's important to keep that in mind that he's really trying to describe these incredible 
visions of things that can't even be explained and then give them back to us. So let's take a look at what John's understanding of what's happening here. We're going to start in Revelation 5, and then we're going to jump to Revelation 6, and then we got a little bit in Revelation 8. So bear with me, a lot of reading. So starting off in Revelation 5, verse 1. Said, then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion, of Ju- the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is a- able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now we're going to jump to Revelation 6, starting in verse 1. And I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called, aloud in a, or they called out in a loud voice saying, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree and were shaken by a strong wind. The heavens uh, receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then finally in Revelation 8.1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So that's all pretty clear, right? <laughs> I mean, the first time I read through that, I was like, yeah, I don't know why people have problems with this. So let's talk a little bit about these seven seals. What are they exactly? Well, it's kind of generally agreed upon that these are, they represent a series of events or timelines or periods of time uh, during the end of time, kind of a roadmap of things that are going to occur. So again, we talked about we're not going to get into really specifics and, and specific timelines, and this is a really good example of that because the actual span of time over which these events take place isn't really clear in Revelation. 
They could have been one point in time. They could have been an entire period of history. In fact, we don't know if these things have actually all taken place in the past, or maybe some of them have taken place in the past, and some of them are going to take place in the future, or maybe all this stuff is still in our future. We don't know. So we're going to try and steer clear of some of those definitive statements about this means this specifically, this means that specifically. But the first thing that jumps out at me in this passage is that all of these events are initiated by Jesus. He's the only one who is able to break the seals and kick off these chains of events. So remember back in week one when we talked about this series, we talked about Revelation as being a story told by Jesus, right? This is actually words from Jesus, a vision from Jesus that was given to John. Now, it's interesting here because he's not just revealing this to John. He's actually the primary actor as well. God the Father stepped aside and gave control over the end of time to the Son. So the first passage says that uh, no one in heaven or earth was able to uh, open the scroll or look inside, and that Jesus was the only one who could break the seals. So once each seal is broken, something happens, right? You've got these horses that come out of nowhere, and you have natural disasters, you have all this other stuff happening. But Jesus knows what's going on. It says that he knows what's in the scroll and he's opening the seals. So there's another point that I want to bring out is that nothing is happening here that Jesus doesn't already know about. He actually is causing these things to happen. This is part of a plan. He's not surprised by any of this. In fact, he knows specifically what needs to happen as we transition from the old earth, the old heaven, to what John calls the new heaven and the new earth, right? And there's comfort to be found in that knowledge that these things have to happen. There are certain things that need to happen in a very specific sequence to make way for the new heaven and the new earth because that new heaven, that new earth, that's where we reside with the Father for eternity. That's where we get to go home. So it seems kind of scary and chaotic, but it's all under Jesus' control, and it is all foretold, it is all going to happen, and in the end, we get to be with the Father. So let's go back to the seals, and let's take a look at what they are and what they represent. We're going to use a parallel passage in Matthew 24, because uh, Pastor Matt actually talked about this last week. This is not the only place in the Bible that the the end of time events are talked about. Jesus talks about them in Matthew. He actually talks about them again in Luke. And using these parallel passages gives us a little bit better insight into what's happening and gives us kind of an ability to cross-check some of that information. So you've probably heard the term the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Show of hands. People familiar? Yeah, pretty much everyone in here. Well, this is actually the passage of Scripture that that comes from. We just read about these four horses. And they're not really bringing like tidings of, you know, glad tidings of cheer and hope. They're not like the Christmas angels. They're bringing pain. They're bringing death. They're bringing destruction. They're bringing really, really hard things that normally we don't like to think about. But remember that Revelation is designed to be a guide. It's designed to give us a picture into what's happening so that we aren't afraid. We know these things are going to happen. Jesus told us these things were going to happen. We don't need to fear them. So we're going to start off the first seal. We've got a white horse in Revelation 6.2. 
So when that first seal is broken, John's attention is called to this rider on a white horse. He's wielding a bow. He's given a crown, and he rode as someone bent on conquest. So it occurred to me this first horseman kind of seems like Jesus was supposed to appear in the mind of the Jews, right? He was the Savior. He was the Messiah. They were being oppressed by the Romans. They, they thought that Jesus was going to come much like this rider on this horse, someone bent on conquest, somebody going to free them, as opposed to a lamb to be slain. In Matthew 24, 4 and 5, Jesus answered and says, watch that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. So now all of a sudden we have a little bit clearer picture. This isn't a good thing. This is actually somebody that is almost like Jesus, but not quite. Someone who acts and sounds like Jesus, but just a little bit different. Somebody who says things that maybe line up with the scripture close, but not close enough. Everything's just a little bit off. This writer is an antichrist. Again, remember the, the message series we just finished up, uh, did God really say that? That entire series was built on things that sounded plausible, right? Like that could have been in the Bible, but it actually wasn't. That's the kind of stuff you're going to get from this deceiver, this person here who is uh, riding around saying things that sound close, that looks like the kind of deliverer Messiah we want, but is not. That's the kind of thing we're to be on guard for at all times in our lives, according to Scripture. In fact, in Luke 21, Jesus warns the disciples. He says, watch that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. So it's another parallel passage talking about the end of time. Notice that he says, many will come in my name. And I think that's kind of interesting because we think of, remember I said an antichrist? I didn't say the antichrist. We tend to think of this, again, in our human minds as like this is one point in time. But maybe this is an age of deception. Maybe it's from the time that Jesus walked the earth until the end of time that this horseman is going to be riding and roaming the earth. Again, he says, many are going to come in my name, not just one. So regardless, we need to be on guard. We always should be listening. We always should be processing what we, what we hear, what we take in. John 10, 27 says, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I think that last verse is key for us. We're going to come to our first fill in here. That if we listen closely, we'll recognize the true voice of the Father. So what Jesus says is going to line up with Scripture, right? I mean, the, the Scripture came from God the Father. Jesus is the Son. Everything he says is going to be the truth. So we need to be diligent in our study of the Scripture. We need to understand what it actually says and not what we think it says. We should be really, really well steeped in this. In fact, my buddy Greg over there, and I've been talking about this recently, he's got a real hunger to be more in the scripture because he wants to know when he hears something that sounds close but isn't quite right, he wants to know exactly where that's found in scripture and if that's actually 100% accurate. Man, I admire the heck out of that. The truth is, folks, there's one God, there's one Savior, there's one path to salvation, there is one scripture. And anything that attempts to add or subtract from that is false. End of story, full stop. So when you hear things like people say, well, Jesus isn't the only way to salvation. There's a lot of 
ways you could get there. Or, you know, I know the Bible says that, but that was like for that specific period of time. You know, that doesn't really apply anymore. Those kinds of things should make the hair on your neck stand up. I'm going to give you the only dad joke I put in this sermon today. <laughs> Man, I had to fight. It's Father's Day. You want to come up here? Okay. But as the saying goes, close only counts in horseshoes. There it is. Okay, we got to keep moving. we got a lot of ground to cover here. The second seal, the fiery red horse. This one's violence. So the next seal's broken. Another horse and rider appear, and this horse is described as firing red, and the rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. And this horseman was given a sword. So back to our path- passage in Matthew 24. It says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. So now we've got our horsemen of violence and war. Now, as humans, we've been pretty good at making violence and war on our own since the beginning of time. You don't have to go real far into Genesis before Cain kills his brother Abel. You don't have to go much farther than that before there's all sorts of other violence involved, including Israel was kind of a warring country at different times. It was itself conquered many times. Uh, 11 out of the 12 original disciples were actually martyred. Jesus, the only man to walk this earth without sin, was killed in the most brutal fashion imaginable. So we're pretty good at this. This horseman seems like he's been here for a while. And so looking at our society today, as we see mass shootings and riots and wars overseas, it's apparent that for all of our supposed advances, we're still human beings bent on violence, that this rider is still with us. So the fact that this rider is present, what do we do about that? I mean, we know that these things are going to happen anyways, but I think there's a little bit of a hedge against some of this, and that's practicing the fruit of the Spirit. So what does it even mean to practice the fruit of the Spirit? Well, basically it means that on a daily basis we are going to ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit. That is something we should be doing anyways. Because we're going to, whatever we're filled with is going to come out of us, right? None of us are empty vessels. If you're surrounded with this particular culture, that's what's going to come out of you. If you are surrounded with violence, that's what's going to come out of you. Matthew 12, 34 says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So we need that daily filling of the Spirit, right? We need that. If we want to exude the characteristics of the Spirit, we need to be filled with the Spirit. Otherwise, that horseman, that rider of violence and war, that's what's around us. That's what surrounds us. That's what's going to come out of us. Do you need more violence and war in your life? I sure as heck don't. So how about this list then? Galatians 5. How about love? Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How about those? Because most of those characteristics are at odds with strife, division, and war. Remember, our goal as we read through Revelation here is to be aware of what's going on around us and to have a clear vision of what's going on around us We need to have a Christ-centered mindset so we understand these events in the context of what Jesus is trying to teach us. 
If we have peace in our lives, if we have forbearance, which is just a fancy word for patience, if we have self-control, we're going to see, we're going to be far more likely to see the strife around us for what it is. It's the playing out of spiritual attacks in our physical world. But you've got to have the spirit. You've got to have that vision. You've got to have that Christ-centered focus or you're not going to understand what's going on around you in the context of what's happening in the world you can't see. And being filled with the Spirit is going to have another effect, actually. It's going to give us the ability to not add to the conflict ourselves. If we're filled with peace, we won't promote war. If we're filled with patience, we won't lose our temper. If we're filled with self-control, we're not going to add to the strife around us. In the midst of a warring world, we can be a bastion of peace and comfort to those around us. And we don't need to be drawn into the conflict. That last part of uh, the Matthew passage where he says, such things must happen. So we know that no matter what we do, these wars and these rumors of wars are going to be part of the narrative. Been foretold, Jesus broke the seal, that's going to be initiated. It doesn't mean that we as the church need to be drawn into that conflict, though. We've already picked a side. We picked the side of God's truth. His truth can stand on its own. We only need to profess it and stand firm. As long as we do that, God has everything else in hand. He doesn't need us to be God for him. Okay, we've got two horses down, two to go. I know, we're running fast here. Third seal, black horse, famine. That one sounds fun. These just keep getting better. I'm so excited about this. So the third seal's broken, and another horse and rider appear. And this time it's a, a black horse, and the rider is carrying a pair of scales in his hand. Uh, back to our passage in Matthew 24, it says, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine and earthquakes in various places. So this horseman represents famine, which is scarcity. And the scales in the hand represent rationing of food and commodities and other things that we need to survive. Uh, Revelation 6.6, we heard one of the living creatures call out, then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and wine. I'm going to admit, I had no idea what that meant when I started through this. That one took me a little while to unpack. So what it turns out is two pounds of grain and six pounds of barley, those are poverty wages. That's enough to keep you alive if you're working to the next day. And that's it. It's not enough to escape anything. It's not enough to move around. It's literally enough to keep you alive and nothing more. So you work for an entire day to keep you alive for the next day, and then you go back and just repeat that process. But that last bit about do not damage the oil and wine, oil and wine are luxury items. Remember, this is spoken back in the first, you know, 20, 30 years after Jesus' death. So luxury items aren't going to be touched. So there's not going to be an inflationary pressure. We keep talking about inflation happening around here, so that's kind of a good word for it. There's no inflationary pressure on these luxury items. But on the things we need, the prices are continuing to be unsustainably high. So there's an indication here in the end times that the things that we need most are going to be the scarcest. And the things we don't need 
they'll still be around. And there's kind of an interesting temptation there uh, to look at that and say, well, you know, as humans, we tend to look at things and we want things that think that things aren't as bad as they really are. So we could point to the luxury items that are still quote-unquote affordable and say, things aren't that bad. Look, that hasn't changed. That hasn't gone up. Meanwhile, we're starving to death. So I followed this thought trail. I'm going to ask you to go down a rabbit trail with me for just a minute. I thought about this in the context of the society we live in today, specifically the relational state of our society. Now, we as humans, we're created to be in community with one another. We are created to need one another. It's in our DNA. We don't stand on our own. We are here this morning because we need community. We need the context of that. But if we look at the society around us, we've traded those relationships for luxuries. You don't have any friends? Got social media. No family? You could just work an extra job or just, you know, go get promoted. Now your job takes you 90 hours a week and you wouldn't have time for a family anyways. No community? 70-inch TV with virtually unlimited programming at your fingertips. Never even have to leave the house. And it was a really interesting concept to me that the things that we need, those relationships, are really, really hard to come by. And the things that we don't need, those luxuries, are right at our fingertips. Now, I know we agreed at the beginning of the series that we were not going to make Revelation mean something different for us than what it meant to the original people that this was given to. They didn't have Facebook back then. They didn't have televisions. And so I think a strict interpretation of this scripture just means literally what it means. In the end, end of times, there's going to be scarcity of the things that we need most. But I appreciate you indulging me a little bit as we dove down that rabbit trail. Because I think it is very important as we read Revelation to understand the context of things that are happening around us, not just physically, but the toll they're going to take on us emotionally and the other kinds of scarcity and famine that we endure on a day-to-day -day basis that distract us from our mission, our goal of being here on this planet to, as Pastor Matt always says, to make Jesus famous. So... It's going to put a strain on our mental and spiritual health as well as we go through these things. Scarcity breeds stress. And prolonged, unchecked stress destroys hope. And we need the hope that Jesus provides. Having that stolen away by a world of scarcity is a really, really dangerous place to be in. It eats away at our faith. Because what is our faith after all? Hebrews 11.1 1 says that our faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. If we don't have any hope, what do we have confidence in? Nothing, according to that verse. We need to be on guard anytime things get lean. We should all be awake and aware of the ways that stress can manifest in our lives. And remember that nothing here that's happening is a surprise. It's been foretold. It's part of the master's plan. Jesus himself is breaking the seals and initiating these events so that we can be home with the Father someday. There's hope and certainty in that. So kind of a last thought on this. Anybody ever seen, they're not as big now, but like 10 years ago, those uh, prepper shows, right? People are just stockpiling stuff. Like, look at this guy's haul. You know, he's, he's stocking guns, ammo, food, water, all the necessities of life, and he's got them all there in his bunker. Now, whenever I see these types of people, all I can think is that if one thing doesn't go your way, if one person is bent on taking your stuff and you catch a stray bullet or whatever happens, you get sick, 
you fall and break your leg, all your preparation doesn't mean anything. Spend 40 years of your life trying to stockpile stuff and it doesn't mean anything. The only real hedge against disaster like this is community. First and foremost, you'd better have community with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have to have that community. But we have to have community with each other as well. We are not built to stand on our own. We all have different skill sets. We all have different viewpoints. We all have different things that we bring to the table. And we need to build strong communities today. I don't know where we're at in this end of time scenario. I really don't. But I know that no matter what comes, I don't want to be caught without a community of people around me to support me, to encourage me, to lift me up in the Lord, to keep me on the straight and narrow, to call me, you know, I'm going to say crap, Matt, to call me on my crap. I need that. We all need that. Okay, last horse. If I could turn the page. Ah. Fourth seal, the pale horse, death. They just keep getting better. Now we're just straight into death. We're not even talking about disasters. It's just death. So the fourth seal's broken, this pale horse appears, the, lit, the rider of the horse is literally death, and Hades is following him. So pale here doesn't mean, I thought there's a white horse already, like what is this, like a beige horse? What does pale mean? So the Greek for pale actually means like a yellowish green, like a pale green, kind of a pallid color. So this is like this is like the color you associate with someone who's really, really sick. You ever seen somebody like in a hospital bed or that's been homesick for two weeks and you see them and they just, they're kind of a yellowy, greenish, sickly color? That's, that's what this means. So there's no correlating passage for this in Matthew 24. Jesus doesn't talk about it. But I mean, this one seems pretty straightforward. The writer's name is literally death. <laughs> so this last horseman is the one that we absolutely can't win against, right? So... If you're talking about somebody who's trying to deceive you, you can stay close to the scripture and you can have some kind of defense against being deceived. If you're talking about war and violence, there are things you can do to avoid war and violence or even to sow peace around you. You know, if you're talking about, uh, we talked a little bit about community just now as kind of a hedge against disaster of, you know, a famine or a scarcity type. What are you going to do about death? If you've watched the news or, I don't know, been alive on this planet in the past two years, you may have noticed there was a global pandemic happening. We're still in the, the final throes of it. It's not quite gone yet. We lost some people in our church body here at Cornerstone to COVID. I lost family members to COVID. But during that same period of time, we saw miraculous healings in this body. We saw people that had cancer that the doctors just said, nope. There's no chance, and then they're cancer-free. We've seen the miraculous hand of God at work here during that time. So I'm going to make, I made this point a bunch of times this morning. I'm going to make it again. God is in control. God has the power to overcome sickness and death, so we should be staying close to him. We need to stay close to him while this horse is out roaming the earth. So we should be regularly lifting up the sick and the infirm in prayer. And here's a kicker. We should be doing it expecting that God's going to move. Yes. He's not our last resort. 
He's not the thing we go to because the doctors have said things are hopeless. It's like, well, I guess I can throw up a prayer for it then. You go to the feet of the Father with that prayer request expecting him to answer. And I know that's not easy to do because we've all been through a lot. But he is there and he is loving and he cares and he is able to overcome even death. So we've talked about the first four seals and now we're going to get into the, uh, the last few here. And honestly, they're kind of a marked departure. So the fifth seal, they talk about the martyrs. Uh, we've got Revelation 6, 9 through 11. I'm going to try and get through this quick, but basically the martyrs are kind of hiding under the altar and they cry out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So when Jesus opens it, you've got this group of people who, for their faith, for what they proclaimed, were killed. And it's interesting here because it talks about Jesus effectively telling them, wait a little bit longer. Your time is not yet, and there is a, there's a defined number of people that are going to be killed for their faith that has not been fulfilled yet. So back in uh, John, John 16, 33, he says, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we already know the world isn't on our side. Jesus has already told us we're going to have trouble. We, you know, at this point, nobody is, has not, if you were a Christian in the early church, it's highly unlikely, probably impossible that you didn't know somebody personally who had been killed for their faith. But again, there's no new information here in Revelation, right? Jesus already told us we're going to have trouble. We're already going to have problems. But look at that last part. I've overcome the world. Jesus tells us he's already won the war. That work's done. He knows how, he's gonna, how it's going to play it out because he's already read the scroll. He's the one breaking the seals. That's why there's hope in this seemingly grim statements like this. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their servants, their fellow servants have been killed. There's hope in that last part because there's a defined number of martyrs. There's going to be an end point to their suffering. And then they're going to have justice because that's what they're calling out for. They're calling out for justice. And God's saying, I'm going to give it to you, but I just need you to be patient a little bit longer while these other events play out. And I know it just sounds like I'm trying to put a happy face on this. But again, I can't stress this enough. Jesus knows what's going on. God has given him control over these events of the end time. And the scale of that's really like, it's too large for our brains to comprehend. We're talking about eternity here. We're worried about our suffering and what's going to happen to us as events like this unfold, God's talking about eternity. You can't even picture eternity. It doesn't make any sense. But those are the stakes we're playing with here. That's what we need to keep in mind when we look at this. So God's got this under control, and it's the same thing that goes for the sixth seal in Revelation 6, 12 through 14. Uh, the sixth seal is opened, and we start talking about natural disasters. And Honestly, it's kind of unnatural disasters. I mean, the list here, there's a great earthquake, but then the sun turns black, the moon turns blood red, the stars fell to the earth, the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, every mountain and island was removed from its place. It's kind of unnatural disasters, actually. But again, God just keeping us informed. These things are going to happen. I love you. I have this under control. Just bear with me a little bit longer. 
we've got to make room for the new heaven and the new earth. So we get to that last seal in Revelation 8.1. When he opened the seventh seal, there is a silence in heaven for about a half hour. Any parents in the room? <laughs> Y'all want some silence for like a half hour? Amen. I could use some of that. So the seventh seal is really, it's marking an end point. Not necessarily the end of the end of times, like things are done. It's just these events have taken place, and now there's a pause. In fact, next week, Pastor Matt is going to get into the trumpets and the bowls, which, man, I thought I had a rough one to deliver, and I'm looking next week, I'm like, well, at least I don't have that one. Okay, so where does this all leave us? I know normally we have like our points up front. I'm giving you the one and only point for this message today, right here at the end. Be alert, not consumed. You need to be alert, but don't be consumed. We should be aware of the events taking place around us and what they mean in the context of Revelation. God chose to reveal this to John for a reason. John was compelled to write it all down for a reason. Jesus was placed in the control of these events for a reason. This is important stuff. It's a reminder that God actually loves us enough to reveal his plan so that we can have hope. We know he's in control. What that doesn't mean is that we should laser focus on Revelation and the events that John saw in this particular vision. Each person who says something contrary to the Bible is not the Antichrist. Each conflict is not the end of the world. Each sickness is not a society-ending plague. There's no way to match up specific events in history, specifically with things in Revelation. People have been doing that for 2,000 years. We can't look at any of this and say, this absolutely points to the end of time and it's happening now. Here's what I'm trying to say. We shouldn't spend more time and effort trying to decipher Revelation than we should asking God, what do you want me to do here today for your kingdom? Right now, in this moment, what do you want me to do, Heavenly Father? That's a question we should be asking ourselves, not worrying about the end of the world. We can't change these events. We can't even defend against it. We can't even prepare for what's coming. I gave us some ways that maybe we can cope with situations as they happen. But there's no roadmap in Revelation where Jesus says, hey, here's what you do to get, get away from that. He just says this is happening. And I imagine it probably breaks the heart of the Father. But he's got a bigger and better plan to work out. And we'll be a part of that one way or the other. How do I know that he's going to take care of everything? Because he said so. We don't have time to go through all these right now. They're going to come up on the screen, though. But Matthew 6, God's going to supply all your needs. Luke 12, preparing is futile. Jeremiah 29, God's plans for us don't revolve around causing us harm. There's many, many more passages that convey these ideas. In fact, if you look these up and you look at the little center part of your Bible where it gives you references for others, that's going to take you to other things that say the same thing. The Bible is replete with this kind of stuff. So that kind of dives right into what we're going to do for uh, ministry time today. I'm not going to call anybody up individually. 
but I would ask you all to stand. So what I'd like to pray for you today is for people who are worried. People who are more focused on the news cycle and the things that are happening around them than they are on the Father. People whose minds are occupied with the, quite honestly, scary events that are unfolding around us rather than seeking what the Lord has for them in that specific day. And this can extend to not just people who are worried, but just maybe, maybe hope. You may, maybe you're doing fine, but Jesus gives us hope. Maybe that hope is elusive. Maybe you're not actively scared about anything, but maybe the hope that Jesus brings is just elusive right now. You know it's there, but you just can't grab it. If that resonates with anybody here, would you raise your hand? Church, look around. There's somebody close with their hands up. Keep those hands up until somebody puts a hand on you. If somebody came with you, that's a good person to you know, put a hand on you. If you don't know that person, probably don't touch them. But you can extend a hand out towards them. Let's pray. Father, your creation is amazing and wonderful and terrifying and scary all at the same time. You gave us free will. You gave us the ability to direct our own events, to not choose you, knowing full well that a lot of us were not going to choose you. And even the ones of us that do choose you on a regular basis, screw that up royally. But Father, the, <laughs> I've, read, I've literally read the end of the book and it says you win. So Father, as we go back out into the world here in about 10 minutes... Would you, in no uncertain terms, make it very, very plain to us that you are in control of what's out there and what's happening? And that that's not a guarantee that everything's going to end up the way we want it. But in the long run, it's going to end up the way you want it. And really, that's where our hearts should be anyways. Lined up with yours, with an eternal mindset as opposed to the shallow, right-in-front-of-my-nose earthly mindset we have. And that's not easy to do, and that's why we're here asking you, Father, would you give us that heavenly, eternal perspective that our puny human minds lack? Father, I think it's super appropriate to be here on Father's Day talking about this because I know that being a father is terrifying at times because there are so many things that seem out of our control. But man, I remember all those times when I was scared as a child and my father, my earthly father, put all those fears to rest. And I know there are times that he was scared and he didn't let me see it because he was busy sustaining me. Father, we can't see you face to face, but you are that for us. On such an amazing grand scale that we can't even comprehend it. Lord, be our Father here during these events. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. 
We pray that you are challenged and blessed by this message and that you find application for it in your life as God leads you through this week. For more information about us, please visit our website at cornerstonevineyard.church.